I remember hearing Seinfeld on a podcast saying, "You, I, I treat myself like an athlete. I, I run every day, and I'm like, that's bullshit. You can do. You can, <laughs> I, I was, I've done some of them drunk. I mean, that's not, yeah. this is not true. I mean, yeah. good for him. Hey everybody, Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. You know the drill. We have a nice tall glass, a maker's mark, and tell great stories with an unusual guest this time. He's not an athlete in any way, shape, or form, but he enjoys athletic endeavors, and you enjoy listening to him because he makes you laugh a lot. We're delighted to take a different turn today with stand-up comic Sam Morrill. Sam, first of all, I need to know, is that, are those pajamas or a smoking jacket? Because if smoking it's a smoking jacket. jacket, it's a strong flex. Yeah, yeah, it's a flex. It's also silk. I'm, I don't go anywhere anymore. If, if I'm gonna stay at home all day, I'm gonna do it in style, you know? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was sort of weird how we connected. Like, I, you know, I followed you on Instagram and you followed me back, we started DMing a little bit. And then we just sort of got into this whole thing, and it's it's turned out we we talk now all the time, and yeah. you, you give me much street cred with my kids, so I want you to know that I appreciate. You it. give me much street cred with my friends, man. I mean, it's, it, you're you were like such a big part of my childhood. I hate to make you feel old here, but I mean, shit, it's yeah, fuck like you. If, <laughs> <laughs> it's like if Cinnamon Toast Crunch sent me a DM and followed me, I'd be like, this is huge for me. So well, that makes that makes sense because there would be a, a short burst of euphoria followed by utter depression. So I guess a sugar a sugar high is the perfect uh, the perfect example of what I would be. But I've really been following you through this pandemic that we're rolling through. How hard is it to be a comedian right now in a COVID era? It's rough, man. I I used to have such a high bar for where I performed. I used to tell my agent like high security, low ceiling. So we pocket the laughs. I want nutritional options on the menu. And I'm literally on the phone with my agent now. Like, yeah, I'll do a parking lot. You know, like (laughs) it's, it's insane. And I'm, and I'm happy to do a parking lot. I'm happy to do roofs. I'm happy to do any park shows. It's, it's so strange. So, you know, you, you, you filmed a special on your own on YouTube. It got over a million hits. Um, how much of this now is sort of helping you deal with this? Because there is no normal, I can't go to this club in Boca or Naples or wherever. Not that you'd ever go back to Naples. There's a whole (laughs) bit with that. You need to find out if you follow Sam Morrill on Naples, but like how, how difficult is it to sort of find consistency at this point, knowing that you, you sort of have to do the parking lots and the roofs and everything like that? Well, it's tough because I put out that special to, to help out, out on the road to boost ticket sales, you know, because you kind of are taking a bribe at this point. If you're not on, like, if you want to be with my first two are on TV with comedy central and no one watches cable. So you're kind of like, Oh, I'll get the money, but I don't get the fans. And you want to get people to come out to see you. So I did it this way. I'm like, well, now they'll all come out to see me. And then a pandemic hit and that did not help. So <laughs> I'm just being patient right now, you know? How hard is that for a guy who like, let's be all most comedians, they it's in your blood. Like it's not a choice. You have to do it. And if you don't do it, bad things are going to happen. So how hard is it to be patient for a career who most of these guys don't know the word patient? It's so hard, man. It's everything takes longer than you think it's going to take. Like we're so I'm working on a show right now with this, with, with this other comedian and we'll, and we'll, they'll be like, we need changes to the show. And we're like, in one day we get the changes. And then they're like, all right, we'll set a phone call uh in two weeks and i'm like two weeks you know what i mean like we just did this in one day so it drives you crazy and and this is the ultimate i mean i see athletes go down with injuries that's the only thing i could think 
I was like, this is must be what it feels like for an athlete when you're like, I want to be out there so badly, except they figured out a way to do basketball with rapid test. We can't do that at like every dingy strip mall comedy club in the country, you know? <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't have a, a drive through COVID testing place in most of the places you go to. Dude, it's, it's, I got, I literally got a COVID test, uh, city MD a couple blocks from me. It took 13 days to get a result. I'm like, how is that helping me? It's literally like getting a, a pregnancy test in nine months. You're like, that's helpful. I was about to say 13 days, yeah. you would have passed quarantine already. So what, what was the point? Yeah, no point. We haven't, <laughs> we, we haven't figured it out in this country. <laughs> okay, so, so self-loathing is part of being a comedian. So, so I have to ask, how did you, like, like people, I have these two theories, right? People that are shredded and ripped, they really hate themselves. Because that's the only yeah. reason you would put in that much time. You, you really can't stand who you are. And then self-loathing is a big part of being a comedian. So how did you find your way into this business? Well, as someone who shredded and ripped and a comedian, uh, no, I, I, uh, I just love jokes. Honestly, I don't have this story that like I'm tortured and I'm, I'm damaged. And I, I really just love comedy and I love jokes. And I, I listened to Chris Rock when I was a kid. And I, I remember the first time I listened to it, like the, the way he would bait people with these, you know, polarizing premises and then get everybody on his side. I thought it was so brilliant. I remember I was listening to one of his CDs. I was probably 12 years old. I probably didn't even get that many of them, but my mom sees me laughing. She grabs the CD player, puts the headphones on. And I see this look of horror on her face and uh, followed by like 20 seconds of horror. And then she just starts laughing her ass off. And I was like, Oh my God, that's kind of beautiful that, that something can do that, that my mom could be like, Oh my God. And then love it. And to me, that was comedy is that you can, you can win over people with an unpopular premise. And I, I love that. So, so when you decided to do this, like, how do you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and tell jokes for a living. And how do you, how do you sell your mom on it? For example, because I'm sure she was like, can't you be a doctor? Isn't that possible? Yeah. My older siblings are lawyers. So, um, Oh, no you know, pressure. <laughs> my mom is an artist and my mom, I think she really liked that. I, had that creative part of my brain working, but she also was like comedy clubs on the, she always would say to me on the road, like, uh, are you sure you want this life? And I'm like, well, I'm already here. It's been like over a decade. Like what, what am I going to do now? You know? So that's what my family always does. You see them at like any, you know, family gathering. They're like, so you're still doing comedy. I'm like, it's been 15 years. At what point do you accept my lifestyle? <laughs> so yeah, my mom was upset that, you know, I think, I think she thought it was an excuse for me to drink too much when I started doing it, which it might've been. I think yeah. I got into comedy, like, well, I get three drinks and I'm 18. So <laughs> that was part of it. But then you start to be around these comics who you respect and you yeah. start to see, like, I remember seeing like Patton Oswalt and Dave Attell in the clubs and being like, Oh my God, I want to do, like, I want to get better at this. So maybe I was dragged in, you know, as a combination of loving jokes, but also some impure motives, but over time, I was like, oh, I want to be I want to be great at this. So who's the best comedian that you've ever worked with? And you've said, dude, that guy is it. I think Dave Attell is the funniest human being I've ever met in my life. Like, I, I've never met a human funnier than Dave. He just he has a way of burning me. That is so, so fun. like he can. There's like a tenderness to how he beats you up with jokes. There's like, I remember, I remember I had a breakup once uh, with a comedian years ago and I was on stage talking about the cellar 
And as I get off stage, Dave said, is that true? You had a breakup? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you okay? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, with you two broken up, who are you going to take to the South by Southwest square dance? You know, immediately <laughs> just hits me. And like, he always, like, I remember on my birthday once I was smoking a cigar outside the cellar. He just grabs me on the shoulder and goes, Hey, Sam, you had a good set, but it wasn't that good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he always just, had, so Attell makes me laugh the hardest. He, he just, huh. Has his word economy, his his he's got this unique rhythm. I, I tell probably still my favorite joke of all time is off his album Skanks for the Memories, where he goes, You remember when you're young and you think your dad is Superman and then you grow up and you realize he's just a drunk who wears a cape? <laughs> that's a that's a brilliant joke. Uh, I love one-liners that say a lot in one line yeah. where you're like, wow, I gotta I actually have to like take a second for that joke. Yeah. Well, how do you go through the process? Because, I mean, like, I'm assuming you're observing things all the time and you think that might be funny. That might be funny. How, I mean, take me through the process of how you decide what like a tight five minute set is, you know? Well, that's yeah, that's weird because it, it, tight five minute sets you think of in terms of late night sets, which now almost feel out of out of place in time. Like back in the 80s, Arson Change Your Life. I've done nine late night sets. I don't think it made a dent in my, like they don't do anything anymore. They get views online. They're fun to do. You get cool stories. You share, you know, you, if, you, if you're on with a cool actor, that's a fun story. But uh, you're working on these late night sets. I guess you want it to have, the hardest part is the opener and the closer because the right. middle you can kind of do anything. And if the jokes are strong enough, everyone thinks a joke has to segue into another joke. If the joke's strong enough, it'll kill and you could just move on to another joke. So it's really about wrapping a bow on it. And, and my, my early late night sets are usually better than the ones I've done recently because you're just so hungry. Like my first one was fine. My second one, I had a chip on my shoulder because I thought I, I should have been getting more attention from the industry. And I was, I was like angry. I, I, I put a lot of work into it. I, that's, it's, I'm wearing like a red flannel. It's on Conan. That's probably my best late night set because every joke was like a, was like a powerhouse joke. And then, um, and then I, o over time, you just kind of like, like, I remember hearing Seinfeld on a podcast saying you, I, I treat myself like an athlete. I, I run every day and I'm like, that's bullshit. You can, do, <laughs> you can <laughs> I, I was, I've done some of them drunk. I mean, that's not, yeah. this is not true. I mean, yeah. good for him. He is, I love Seinfeld, yeah. but I don't believe in that. I think just treat it like it's nothing is was I, what I think it is. You, you go on and be like, this is a regular set. This is not important to me be loose. Sometimes if the first joke doesn't get what I want, which it rarely does, I have to fight myself not to be angry at the crowd on TV because you don't want to, I don't like late night sets because you have one take. You have to just nail it in one take and then that's out in the world forever. It's online. So I like now I can control my own destiny. All right. So, so that's interesting because I've always wondered if you, you come up with a gig or a joke or a line and you think it's money, and you think it's hilarious and you yeah. get no reaction or you don't get the reaction that you thought you would get from the audience. Is that like the worst part of it? Like, I thought this was perfect. It was, I timed it right. It was great. And you guys gave me nothing. I was so upset. I had a joke, uh, first lateness that I ever did on Conan. I still remember I was so upset at the reaction that got, I picked a joke on purpose. I put a lot of thought into it. Well, I'll open self-deprecating. I'll open on a joke that has a lot of punchlines. So if the first punchline doesn't hit by the end of the joke, I'll, it'll be killing. It didn't, you can even find it. I, I think the joke was, 
I, I was trying to go home with this girl and she said, I'd invite you over, but my place is messy. And I said, yeah, that's not really a deterrent at 3 a.m. Like a guy, <laughs> like I'm going to walk into your apartment and be like, absolutely not. This is, <laughs> this is unacceptable. And then the turn was, uh, you know, yeah, if, if, by the way, if you're willing to have sex with me, I'm going to assume your whole life is in shambles, you know? So <laughs> I thought that had a lot of punchlines. So I thought by yeah. the end, and, and, and in the set, I was like, none of them hit that hard. I was pretty upset. And uh, you kind of have to fake it. And I don't like that either. I'm like, why am I faking it? I never fake it in the club. If a joke doesn't hit in the club, I'm going to be like, what's wrong with you guys? Or, I'm going <laughs> to adapt. Or I'm going to riff on the yeah. room. I'm not. So I don't like the, uh, they almost feel like, uh, they're neutering you on some of these sets. Another example of that is, you know, one of my good friends, Nick Griffin, who did Letterman probably 12 times, amazing joke writer, had a joke that I loved where, you know, he's an older guy now and he, and he's, and he said, young women are filled with sugar and spice and everything nice. And I'm filled with anger and semen and shame. And I love that. Joke. <laughs> and on Letterman, they made him say anger and Prozac and shame. And I'm like, you just killed the rhythm of the joke. Yeah. I hate, I hate yeah. that. I, Either either help the comic or don't. But once they start, they start doing that. On, Conan never does that. But certain late night sets are like, this word is a problem. And I'm like, I'm not saying fuck. Semen is the clinical yeah. term, isn't it? Right. I, yeah. I don't know. So I, I always get annoyed when they start neutering. And, and at this point, I'm kind of like, no one watches anyway. I don't think. Well, one of the things that you all, you put a lot of the stuff uh, on your Instagram, you can follow Matt Sam Morrill, is that you, you put up a lot of people that are chirping back at you, you know, that are trying to interrupt the routine. Yeah. Um, how much pride do comedians take in just shutting those people down? I, I don't think it's comedians as much as I think audiences like it, because when you're kind of killing a heckler, it's almost like they're living vicariously through you. And you're like, that's the asshole at work that I don't get to tell off. So I think they, they feel like, they feel like, Oh, I'm in the, the same way that we watch John wick and we're like, hell yeah. He just fucking shot all those assholes. <laughs> So I think that's like your moment, but I don't really care as much. To be honest, I, I care much more about material, but I can't just yeah. be burning material constantly on social media. I, I don't, I'm trying to put out specials. So uh, I'll burn those once the specials are out. But yeah, in the, as I'm building a special, that's the only kind of current stuff I can burn. Yeah. Well, it's look, I, I love it because it's like, it's like, you know, killing flies with a howitzer at some of them do it, but you, 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 you play along just long enough and then it's just bam and they got yeah. nowhere to go. Yeah. I, it's always weird to me. It's usually a drunk. It's usually, I, I, cause I'm not, I, I try not to be a dick about it. Some people just go out there trying to bury them. And like, I hate, I remember I was at a show once and this older guy was like, I don't want to sit up front cause they're going to make fun of me. And the, and the manager said, Oh, he, they don't make fun of you. And literally out of the gate, the host was like, look at this old motherfucker. And I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> oh, no. that guy didn't do anything. He's just old. So uh, yeah. if they interrupt the show or they're assholes, also, I, if they say something, if I'm bored with my material, I don't mind riffing and having fun with the crowd. But if I'm working on stuff and they just keep yelling out, I mean, you kind of have no choice but to address it. All right. So, so up to this point, and again, I hope that you do this for another 30 years. What's what's the moment that you're most proud of? Um, Geez, you know, honestly, just I think. The scariest and most, but also most meaningful moment was probably just getting past the comedy cellar in New York because that club is my favorite club. And uh, so that that's probably the most meaningful thing in my career is that I get to just go up at the comedy cellar. Well, uh, it's that, just such a legendary club. And it's so yeah. it's, 
it's you know where all the best comics work out and it raised it made me i found an old dvd of me in like 2011 or 12 at the cellar and i was like oh i was such a dipshit it's funny to watch yourself i was like man i thought i was an adult i thought i was like this cool comic and i watched myself i'm like oh you i can just see the fake confidence dripping off you i was i was cringing for myself uh so i'm grateful they let me work there back then yeah well look i'm the same way like i I remember looking at some of my first demo tapes I've sent out. I'm like, how did you hire me? I'm, 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 I'm the worst thing that you'd ever put in your VHS at this time. So, uh, so being, as I said, being a comedian is tough enough. Why are you doubling down on being a Knicks fan? Well, it's just in me, man. My brother tried to leave for Brooklyn when, uh, when they went to, when they moved to Brooklyn, he was like, I'm going to be, I live in Brooklyn. I'm going to be a Brooklyn fan. And we went to the Knicks and Nets game at the Barclays and he showed up in a Ewing jersey. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I knew, I knew it went. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I couldn't do it. And I was like, yeah, so yeah. that's, yeah, you can't leave. It's like a part of you. I, I think it's, I, I just, I grew up spoiled with what I know you call a tease of a team, but I mean, yeah. I loved those players so much. I loved Starks and Oakley and Ewing and Mace. Knicks of the nineties. Harper. I mean, they really, I just read this book by Peter Nepper called the nineties Knicks. And it's, it's incredible. It's. They, they were though the ultimate tease, right? I mean, they had Riley, they had this, first of all, they looked like a team that was built of nothing but linebackers. You know, you had Xavier McDaniel, Anthony Mason, these guys, I mean, you want to talk about, you want to go in a backyard brawl. Those are the guys you would want. Yeah. And they literally accomplished everything except that one thing. Yeah. Except that one thing. Well, think about how many players are going to miss out in this era winning a championship because of LeBron, unless they do yeah. join up. Ewing never joined a super team. There was talk that Ewing could have joined the run TMC Warriors, you know, and and he didn't do it. He stuck around. I know Ewing had a contentious relationship with the fans in New York, but I loved Ewing. I, Starks was my favorite player growing up. I think every kid loves Starks. Uh, he was my guy, but I loved I loved them all. Oakley was, he was the tough guy. He was the glue. Mason was like, kind of like a Draymond Green before Draymond Green, you know, a skilled kind of a point forward. They couldn't really shoot the three or anything, but like they, they just were just such a cool, they were like the the Pistons. They just didn't have that second score who was, I guess the Pistons, you know, Dumars was a more consistent second scorer than Starks was. As much, sure. as, as, much as I love Starks, he was a little incon- uh, inconsistent. So, I mean, just to show you how like real the frustration of the 90s Knicks fans is, and everybody talks about it. I was watching a documentary on Netflix the other day called Q-Ball, which is about the San Quentin Prison Basketball League. And they play uh, a Golden State Warriors team of coaches and G League guys. And if they win the game, the Warriors bring – the Larry O'Brien trophy and the players get to hold the trophy. And one of the prisoners, I thought of you immediately because it was, we just had this conversation about how difficult it was to be a, a Knicks fan in the nineties where they did everything but win. And they were so much fun. The guy said, you realize I'm holding the trophy. And he went through four or five people like this guy did. It. Patrick Ewing never got his hands on the trophy. And I'm like, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, everyone uses that Knicks team. It's like, they couldn't get it done. That has yeah. to be so frustrating. Well, there's other teams that were like just built. I, you know, people thought they'd get a ring, like the Phoenix Suns, you know. Right. The, Barkley. Barkley. Yeah. Well, but also the one with Nash, Amari, Marion. Sure. I mean, that team had weapons, man. So, yeah, of course, Barkley with the Suns. The Utah Jazz is used as an example. I mean, Malone and Stockton, they had two guys. Ewing never had a, another offensive weapon like Stockton. They needed a two guard at like the Mitch Richmond level 
they needed someone to just get buckets when Ewing dished it out. And, and Starks, he'd give you 19 a game, which probably like 23 now these days. But yeah. uh, he he was inconsistent. He was also a, in a fiery competitor, man. I love Starks. He was up to guarding. He's six three guarding Jordan, and like, look, it's Jordan, but he he went hard. Yeah, he did. No, listen, he, he you got whatever he had. There's no question. And every Knicks fan will say, "Why couldn't it be there in Game Seven? But that's a separate issue entirely. Of that was the my intro NBA to basketball. Championship. I was seven for that game. Uh, I was seven for Game Seven. Dude, Akeem is just better than Ewing. Like, there's just not Akeem's. I think Akeem's the best big man I've ever seen because. Shaq is the most dominant, but I think Akeem would toy with people now. Just his moves. Like, you're telling me Embiid or Rudy Gobert could stop Akeem Olajuwon? I don't, I don't think anyone in the league could stop him now. Outside of the skyhook, the dream shake might have been the most unstoppable shot for a big man of all time. Okay, so that was the 90s Knicks when it was fun. Yeah. But, dude, it's been misery ever <laughs> since. And, and we were just talking. You were there for – you've been at the game for all the bad things. I was there for the Ewing finger roll against Indiana. I was there for – How that didn't go in? Oh, dude. I, I was, I think, 11, and my dad had to throw me over his shoulder screaming. I was like, it's <laughs> the hardest I've cried. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Uh, it's a weird, it's a weird combo. A New York kid crying and also going fuck. Uh, so there's that. There was Porzingis tearing his ACL. Uh, that was brutal. I was at the Oakley getting thrown out game, which was brutal. Uh, you know, it's been a bad 20 years when like the most joyous moment was two se- two weeks during the regular season with Jeremy Lin. You know, it's yeah. like. Yeah, insanity. All right. So, so as a, as a long suffering tortured yeah. Knicks fan, what is the word, what, what does the name James Dolan mean to you? You know, I'll say this, he gets a lot of shit and obviously I think we need a new owner as every Knicks fan does, but he gave, he gave, he's given the wrong guys, the keys he's given Phil Jackson. Everyone was like, it's, he gave him the keys. Jackson made horrible moves, you know? He, he wasn't even a full-time guy. Like, he, he, he commuted from Montana. I know. I, I, so that was tough. It, it, uh, I, I just feel like, you know, there's like a darkness in that building, and that's tough. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like we need like a Mark Cuban type. We need someone who's just really fun and, and really, I don't know. It, it's, it seems like he kind of stays away from the Rangers, but is much more involved with the Knicks. And I think we need, we need that, but we'll see what Leon Rose does. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that Leon Rose turns it around. I worldwide West. Yeah. I I'm hopeful. They seem like I've heard nothing bad about those guys. I think, you know, no disrespect to Steve Mills. I don't think there's a reason he hasn't been scooped up by another franchise. He made, when they signed Tim Hardaway Jr. to that $80 million deal, whatever they paid him, I remember looking at my phone and you would have thought one of my close friends got stabbed or something. Like it was, <laughs> that was the reaction. I was just like, why? Why they just, that's what they do is they don't have this good culture right now. So in order to get a star, you have to overpay them. And then that cripples the franchise. And if you get certain guys who want to come here, want to come for the wrong reasons, they want to be a part of this big media market. You need you need winning guys. Like I, I felt it for a minute when we brought in Chauncey Billups for like half a season, when we brought in Tyson Chandler, those are winning culture guys. You need guys like that to want to come here. Yeah. It's interesting. The Knicks always seem to clear the cap space for that big free agent and they end up in Brooklyn. I mean, that's, that's sort of the way it goes. 
If they if Brooklyn lands James Harden, even though it's not a good fit, it'll break my heart because it's just it's not a good fit in terms of like three scorers who <laughs> Durant's a good defender, but those two don't play D. And you know Kyrie's not going to be the third banana. It's going to get weird. So I like that, but I don't like. I mean, Harden's a once in a lifetime offensive weapon. I, so is Durant. But he's not giving up the ball. I mean, you know that. So yeah, I'd, I it would hurt that they would land that kind of star power and that they'd want to be there. So the garden is so important. I mean, you talk about that nineties Knicks team, you didn't mention Houston, Sprewell, LJ, like yeah, I love those absolutely. guys can be like, we had yeah. some great teams in my lifetime. It just hasn't been any time recent. Okay. So here's the hardest question because you are clearly a huge Knicks fan. Yeah. And I mean, to the core for anybody yeah. that can still claim a Knicks fan, you have my ultimate respect because it's just like beating yourself over the head with a club. It's just, it's just me for and 82 games, me and Jerry Ferrara. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So pinnacle moment for you, you get uh, a Netflix special that yeah. shatters all returns and it's off the charts and it launches you to a stratosphere that you never thought you would be in as a comedian or the Knicks win an NBA title. What are you choosing? It's not really just about a title. It's about, see, that's the thing is that everyone thinks it's about winning. It's about, I'm okay with losing the right way. We're not losing. It's not being a laughing stock, right? Yeah, is that what you're saying? The nineties Knicks didn't win. And they were my favorite team in any, like I'm a Yankees fan and the Yankees, the nineties Knicks are my favorite team of all time. And the Yankees and the Giants are also my teams. They've won. The, the Knicks in the 90s are my favorite because it's not just about winning. It's about losing gracefully and losing as a unit and, and believing and, and liking the team. I, don't, I just kind of didn't like how they played. It's just a lot of bad shots. Carmelo is an incredible player. I love Carmelo. I don't like one-on-five basketball. I like yeah. I like 90s Knicks. They threw the ball around. They played like those right. 70s Knicks. I, I love the way the Spurs play. I love the way like the Pistons with Billups, Rip, Tayshon, Sheed, and Big Ben played. I love team ball. I love the way the Warriors play. I'm so sad yeah. for Clay Thompson's. I, I like yeah. teams that are playing as a unit, and I, I miss that. Right. So So again – which one are you taking? The title or you are an international superstar? <laughs> I, I sound like such a douche if I bet on myself here. I think uh, I this think is a I douche, take, this is a douche friendly zone. Just so you know. I, I mean, I'm wearing a smoker's jacket. I think uh, I think I take the title because I, I I can control my work that I yeah. put out there, but I can't control what the Knicks are doing and the Knicks the Knicks being good. I think the Knicks being a good culture and a good environment over the title. Even I just want it to be good again. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is why the word fan is short of the word fanatic right there. You have summed it up better than I possibly could. Yeah. Sam, always good to talk to you, my friend. Continued success. You too, man. All right, brother. We'll talk soon.